What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 53. We're going to be doing There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. We can call this the masterpiece episode, two of our favorite films. We have, obviously, posters of them on our on our walls. Uh, I would probably put No Country for Old Men as my, my number one favorite film. I think it's a perfect film. I think no, uh, There Will Be Blood is also my top five. Every time I watch them, I've probably seen them both a dozen times. Every time I watch There Will Be Blood, I just can't stop thinking this is one of the greatest films ever made in general. And Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coen brothers, it's insane we haven't talked about them yet, which is just letting everyone know, like, we have a lot of movies and content to get to, so I'm really excited to be talking about these two filmmakers because I love the Coen brothers. Every single one of their movies is great. But, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think a lot, like, living filmmakers, he might be the most artistic and possibly the best living filmmaker right now. Yeah, that's a great uh, argument, and it can be justified from his work. And uh, There Will Be Blood is my favorite movie. It's the movie that when I saw that when I was in high school, it made me think about movies in a different way and really made me fall in love with cinema itself. So that was the catalyst for that when I saw that movie. And these aren't just our favorite movies, but they actually came out at the same time. They were actually competing um, at the Academy Awards for Best Picture and all the other nominations. And No Country ended up winning, which, I mean... It's it, you can make the case for either one to win Best Picture, but they are it's it's the word masterpiece is used a lot, but with these two movies, they really are true masterpieces of the 21st century. And if you make a list of like the top 10 movies made in the last 20 years, these two films have to be on it. Absolutely have to be on it. And obviously, we know Daniel Day Lewis won Best Actor for his iconic performance as Daniel Plainview, probably the greatest acting performance that we'll ever see in cinema. And then Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem are great as the other co-leads in No Country, as well as Tommy Lee Jones is fantastic. So a ton of great, great high-caliber acting, high-caliber directing. Both these films are very similar. They're they're shot in the same areas in West Texas and New Mexico. Um, So they have very similar aesthetics, a lot of natural cinematography, Great cinematography from Robert Ellswit for Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, and then um, Roger Deakins, the legend, doing the Coen Brothers, No Country. And these they complement each other so well, these two movies. And they're kind of just similar themes, similar um, blending of genres, especially No Country, because No Country is like a thriller slash western slash suspense. And then There Will Be Blood is kind of similar too, where it's just the suspenseful thriller, but also undertones of of power and greed and capitalism and they're both just amazing yeah 100 percent. and robert ellswit was the cinematographer who won who won the uh, oscar so there will be blood won the two oscars for daniel day and then for ellswit and then no country um won the rest of the awards they were up against competing against and uh, this is one of the best shot movies of the last you gotta say like 50 years it's absolutely stunning and roger deakins that no country uh, also a phenomenal job it's one of his last films he shot on film um, that's a non-Cohen Brothers movie. He In the uh, early 2010s, he started going pretty much digital except for the Coens. So um, it's always great to see his stuff on film. And in terms of, <clears throat> uh, like you said, the performances are amazing. The films are very similar, especially uh, the tones. I think that uh, movies in Hollywood, they kind of have waves. There are waves of genres and ideas and tones that people like to see in movies. And I think in this time, there was a period where people were really interested in seeing like dark dramas, uh, period pieces. Um, and this is a year that uh, a lot of great movies came out. And uh, these two were obviously the top of the, the cream of the crop. And they are very similar 
in terms of how the stories are told because they're very slow, uh, extremely um, well-paced, uh, meticulously directed. And the, the opening of both of these movies, they, uh, they, they start with um, very minimal dialogue for the first 15 minutes of each film. No Country um, only has a little bit of dialogue. And then There Will Be Blood basically has no dialogue for the first 15 minutes. So um, it showed uh, the true craftsmanship of directing uh, in terms of you can, you can have a film keep people enthralled without having anyone speaking. And both these films are based off books. No Country for Old Men might be the best book book adaptation I've ever seen in terms of um, how closely res it resembles the book, the No Country for Old Men novel written by Cormac McCarthy. And so whenever we talk about No Country and the storytelling, we'll just assume that we're also talking about Cormac McCarthy because a lot of the dialogue is verbatim from that book to the film, but yeah. it, obviously the dialogue it takes on a new life when it's being spoken by these great actors. And but really, it's it's both the Coen brothers and Cormac McCarthy telling this amazing story with these amazing characters. And then there will be blood is loosely based off the book Oil by Upton Sinclair. Really, just like the first hundred fifty pages, the rest of the book it's focused on the sun. So that's really what PTA took out of that book. Yeah, Oil is basically. H.W. is his point of view for the book. Um, he's the main character. And then I, I will, I'll say, I won't say No Country is the best novel adaptation. There's a bunch of really good ones, but I would say it's the most faithful. I, yeah, that's what I mean, like yeah. most accurate. And yeah, yeah like, because it is like, if you've read the book, it's like page for page. The movie follows the, the book like perfectly, and it's amazing. The only difference is um, they left the ending ambiguous in the film where you learn a little bit more about the ending in the novel, um, which we'll uh, we'll talk about later when we get to that. And also, I think the Coen brothers like kind of invented the shotgun that um, Anton Sugar uses. Yeah, that's uses. not it. Yeah, yeah. So, so just little things like that. But in terms of like again, dialogue, scenes, characters, it's spot on. Yeah, and it's amazing. And this is this was a great year for movies and easily one of the best years of the century so far for film. Yeah, we did a compilation video for TikTok. If yeah. anyone's seen it, two best two, one of the best years ever was two thousand seven. It was absurd. Mm -hmm. A major contrast between these films is film scores and music. And obviously, Johnny Greenwood did There Will Be Blood, this amazing, eerie, heavy string score. And it's like almost undertones of genre, of a horror genre at the same time, which I think that's what PTA is going for. It's almost like a horror movie at the same time as this dark drama. And Johnny Re Greenwood, he's obviously infamous for being the legendary guitarist of Radiohead. Um, this is, I think, one of his first films he ever scored. I think it was the first one, maybe. Was, um, he made a couple in the early 2000s. Major so Hollywood production then. He did a couple foreign films. And yeah. his score is one of the best parts of this film because we'll get into more of like the editing and cinematography and the way that PTA shot this and how the score really envelops you and brings you into the story more and more. Whereas No Country for Old Men, I think there's maybe... Like 15 seconds of score. There's 16 just, minutes. 16 minutes? So there's six, <laughs> so wrong. There's it's very six, undertone. Yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. that's the thing. It's 16 minutes, but it's uh, very subtle. And probably the the best instance of hearing music in that movie is uh, near the end when Tommy Lee Jones' character, Ed Tom, enters the motel uh, after the scene of, the, of Lou Allen's death. And then you can hear the scene, the music actually get louder and louder as he approaches the door. And that's basically the only instance of the movie where you even notice music. Yeah, Otherwise, another time it's when uh, Carson Wells and Chigurh are talking. There's yeah, some music right yeah. before he it's kills them. It's all very subtle, and you barely hear anything when you do hear it. So, yeah. But that the movie, for the most part, is quiet, and I think that's one of the strengths of the movie, whereas one of the strengths of There Will Be Blood is the music because Greenwood created uh, one of the most inventive scores you've ever heard 
Um, and I think in terms of Hollywood, but these are, uh, there's yeah. been a lot of composers and this is an entire like style oh, yeah, of modern. Yeah. modern yeah, like Arvo yeah. Parr is a great, yeah. uh, classical composer, modern one who yeah, makes modern, music yeah. like this. And, and you can listen, you can hear the, the voice of Johnny Greenwood in this, in his move, in his film scores. Uh, you can hear the same voice in Radiohead's music because he's the guitarist and he comes up with most of the main themes of the music, most of them, not all of them. And he often likes to play his guitar with 16th notes, which are, you just play the notes as like very quickly. And uh, the, his his music sp like wave, spreads in waves in those songs, just like with it does. delays. Yeah, just like how he does it in There Will Be Blood, but he just changed the instruments to uh, a string quartet. Yeah, if you actually, I would recommend if you're a fan of guitar work or guitarists and musicians, if you watch like live performances of Radiohead and like look up like Johnny Greenwood playing guitar on stage, because live performances are obviously so much different than studio albums and tracks where they just experiment so much more on stage and just kind of improvise a lot. And you can, like you just said, you can hear his voice in his film scores just like you hear when you see him perform guitar live. Exactly. It's the same thing as like. Every band has their own unique voice. Every film composer has their unique voice. So if a musician is going to make a rock song in, in a film score, it makes sense that the voice is still present and still identifiable. And Johnny Greenwood does all of PTA's movies. Like, The Master so, yeah. is an amazing score, yeah. too. So, yeah, he did it. He's, this was his first one with him. And otherwise, PT, PTA had a, a couple other composers. But you can tell with Punch Drunk, Punch Drunk Love, it has a very similar uh, kind of tone. Whereas the music is very strange, and I think that's what PTA likes. He likes his scores to just be unique and very different, other than like Phantom Thread, which is just plain beautiful. Yeah. Um, but his his other movies, the the scores are very just very strange. You don't really hear music like that in films. Like a lot of his characters, like the exactly. character of that film is a very odd guy, and the yeah. music kind of matches that like classic Hollywood, mm -hmm. uh, like cinematic music mixed with like some weird stuff going on too. Exactly. Yeah. As always, spoilers are abound. We're assuming you have all seen both these movies, so FYI. They're coming. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost. Fellas, we all got to groom. It's a part of life, especially during lockdown. Manscaped has this amazing new lawnmower. It's got a light on it. It's waterproof. They sent us that. They sent us their weed whacker. They sent us pretty much everything that they sell there. The deodorants, their deodorizers. The cologne. Cologne. Briefs. T-shirts. Everything yeah. is amazing. Such phenomenal products. So I'm wearing the t-shirt right now. Yeah, yeah, guys. You got to get on manscaped.com. The best clippers I've ever used in my life have been using those store brand ones that pull out hairs and it's the worst. And these, it's actually high quality stuff. And it's, it's every time I click it on, it's like, oh my God. It's like, I, could, I just want to watch it and listen to it buzz. It's like 8,000 RPM. It's insane. <laughs> Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for 20% off your entire order year round and free shipping. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout, manscaped.com. There Will Be Blood, directed in 2007 by Paul Thomas Anderson. Written by Paul Thomas Anderson, based on the book Oil by Upton Sinclair. This film stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, and Dylan Frazier. This movie had a budget of $25 million and a worldwide box office of $76 million. A turn-of-the-century oil prospector ruthlessly sacrifices everything in order to gain immense wealth and power. Like I said earlier, this is easily uh, one of the greatest masterpieces of the last century, and um, it will go down as one of the best American films ever made. Um, and Paul Thomas Anderson's directing in this is uh, revolutionary, not just in terms of filmmaking itself, but uh, he, he made a big transition in his career with this film. Uh, his first few films, uh, I'm talking like Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, uh, not so much Punch Truck Love, but his first three films, 
they were very much inspired by another filmmaker, Robert Altman, who was a, a big director in the 80s and 90s. And um, he passed away, um, I think, 15 years ago now, almost. And he was synonymous for making these ensemble movies with uh, a large cast, interwe- interweaving storylines. Um, he liked to use a lot of long takes. He liked to move his camera around really quickly, um, use the environments. Like in the film The Player, he has an amazing 10-minute uh, opening shot with Tim Robbins in, in, on a film studio. And so Robert Altman was Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite filmmaker. So a lot of his films, they took inspiration from Altman in terms of directing. So it wasn't those movies weren't fully PTA. They weren't fully Paul Thomas Anderson movies. But then with Punch Drunk Love, he is his first movie with just one lead character for the most part. It's not an ensemble, and it's a very simple story about a character piece rather than intersecting ensemble characters. And then with There Will Be Blood, he f- he finally translated his real voice as a filmmaker into an epic scale and created a masterpiece. And then I think this is the defining moment in Paul Thomas Anderson's career where he finally showed, he finally found his true voice as a filmmaker and became a much more... Um, talented patient and confident director in his own voice with this movie yeah it's a great point i think uh there will be bloods his best movie i think he's made two masterpieces though because i i think boogie nights is a masterpiece as well too the master is amazing as well yeah i mean i mean yeah. yeah the master i mean the guy probably has made three masterpieces then i mean i love punch drunk punch drunk love too he's probably one of my, he's one of my top five favorite filmmakers and you're right. I mean, Boogie Nights is an amazing movie, but there's a lot of characters going on, uh, a lot of different storylines. And he just has an amazing way when he's focusing on just a couple or three characters tops to really flesh them out and really write them uniquely. And just like Daniel Day-Lewis's depiction of Daniel Plainview, which obviously PTA wrote and then uh, Daniel Day created, the most fleshed out character I've ever seen in a movie. Like this is like... Every movie I've ever seen, this is a real person. The movie is a character piece. It's it really all, is. Yeah, it's all it is. And so he has an amazing job after just focusing on those ensembles just to like put all of his effort into the character becoming the real movie, the story. is all about the character. Yeah. And it, it, that's what I think changed with this film because the other movies was about the characters intersecting and how their lives became crossed. But now, like you said, when he focuses on one character, the film uh, becomes monumental because of it. Also, his directing, he still uses a lot of long takes in this movie, but um, they're not so much uh, show-off, showy, like uh, in Boogie Nights or Magnolia. Um, they're much more subtle. So, for example, he's not moving his camera through different environments. He's using, he's moving the camera through one environment with different setups. So, the, so for example, he does this a bunch of times in this movie where he creates several setups with each take without cutting. And so for the this first scene... Early in the film, when Plainview uh, is met by um, Paul Sunday, Eli's brother, when Paul's telling him about the well in Boston, um, the the scene starts in the doorway with Paul just the le- edge of his leg in frame, and we see Daniel and his uh, and his uh, partner sitting at the table, and then Paul walks into the room, and the the camera follows him a little bit, and then we see the three of them sitting in the room together, and then the camera moves again, and so with this ta- with this shot, PTA sets up three different camera angles without cutting and it's i think it's like a, a four minute take yeah and so there's a bunch of those shots sprinkled in this movie that you don't really notice it because it's happening so slowly and so subtly but they are extremely long takes so he took his love of long takes and made it more nuanced and and subtle yeah stay on cinematography for a little bit because there's so much to talk about with there will be blood and like you said he uses a lot of long takes in this movie 
And despite this movie being two and a half hours long, he only has 678 cuts, which means that the average shot is about 13 seconds long. And just to put that into perspective with modern filmmaking, where over the last 60, 70 years, the average time per shot, per cut in the average Hollywood film is just declining. It's down to like four seconds, three seconds. I mean, the longest shot in like Taken 2 is like 10 (laughs) seconds long. It's it's crazy because we've talked about long takes a lot, especially on that Children of Men episode where it's the ultimate way to experience realism because that's how we experience the real world. We don't cut we blink our eyes and we turn but just like you said with with pta how he he uses these long takes to make different shots with one take and i think my other favorite example besides that is the shot where he's about to to open the the derrick well mm-hmm. for the first time and the fir- the opening shot of that scene is his hand on the railing yeah and then it pans up to a beautiful wide of the entire town looking up at him with him in was it over the shoulder shot yeah and so these are scattered throughout the entire film and they do it constantly there's a ton of great ones at the very end in the bowling alley scene with with eli and daniel yeah and by cutting less you're getting a real sense of the story the characters but also the composition of the shots and each each shot in this movie is a beautiful masterpiece aesthetically i mean each one could be a, a photo and put in a museum they're all they're so beautiful and there's so much natural lighting in this movie they use very minimal set set design and production yeah, I mean, the biggest set piece is the oil derrick, the one that gets lit on fire. Besides mm-hmm. that, we're mostly spending our time in, like, obviously that there's the train and then uh, the bowling alley and the mansion. The mansion at the end, which we'll talk about later on, has a significance to other inspirations for the film. And then also he's just hanging around in these deserts and these wastelands and, like, on these cheap chairs and this, in these little makeshift shafts. And they he made a beautiful film. They did the, the cinematographer Ellswit in him with minimal set design. Naturalistic cinematography, too, was important for both of these films. A lot of natural lighting and both shot in West Texas, lots of plains, lots of deserts. That's the thing with a period piece like this, because this is set during the turn of the century. So um, it's not like there's power everywhere. So they were loyal to the boundaries of the time. And so they couldn't use lights if they wanted to be authentic. And so any night scenes that's lit with uh, a lot of candlelight and fires and in the daylight scenes, uh, we're just getting light pouring in from the windows. And yeah, they're probably setting up lights outside the windows. But for the most part, when they're outside, they're not even using bounce boards most of the time. It's just, yeah. they're just shooting. And they actually shot majority of the film exteriors during magic hour, which is just a couple hours of, of light before sunset. And it's a beautiful lighting, obviously, but it's called magic hour because it looks the best, but also it runs away fast. Yeah. And PTA, PTA also believes in an always moving camera in his films. The movie, the movie, the camera's always moving, whether it's tracking, dollying, or sometimes it's on a crane, very seldomly. But Especially, the, and then the the biggest one that he does most often in this movie is a slow push in yeah. on each character. So very the camera, subtle the camera, sometimes. The camera's always just slowly pushing into someone. Even if you think it's frozen, it's, it's subtle. It's very subtle. It's there. A lot of close-ups happen in this film, too, and generally... When you've seen a close-up in a film, it's during a lot of dialogue. But in this movie, he uses these close-ups to show a lot of silence, a lot of quietness, so you can actually feel like you're there with the characters. And a lot of times it makes a lot of uneasy environments and, and discourse between characters. Like when they're at the dinner table on the Sunday ranch, there's a there's the close-up dialogue, but then you have these long pauses in between the cuts between like Daniel and, and, and Eli at, at that dinner table. So, this is an amazingly edited movie. Yeah, it really it's amazing. is. I mean, just that dinner scene, for example, the way they sh- the way they shot that scene is amazing. Where he's where he's at the Sunday ranch and they've they found the oil and they're he's offering to buy the buy land. the ranch. Yeah. and it sets up with this wide of the table where Daniel's talking to the father. 
but we don't realize that he's not really in charge. Eli's really in charge, but PTA and Ellsworth, keep, they hold this wide angle of just the entire table. And then when Daniel finally realizes that Eli's the one who's in control, we just do close-ups of them back and forth. Yeah, exactly. And he, he's able to translate the power dynamics going on in a scene with his camera work and with the patience of the filmmaking. And in terms of, like you said, um, just letting beats and pauses play out, he understands the when you have someone like Daniel Day-Lewis acting in your movie, all you have to do is just run the camera and just capture everything he's everything he's doing because he's such a genius and such a brilliant artist. Uh, a lot of he people are, would be surprised if they knew uh, just how much uh, improvisation he does in his movies. And um, when when you have someone like that who never wastes a, a a frame of film for you, you just hold on him and let him do his thing. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Don't go to Amazon.com for your posters. Go to MoviePosters.com. It's the number one place to get your movie posters online. They sent us all these posters on our set. I can attest these are high quality, super affordable. These guys can do framing, backlighting, glass. They have all sorts of fi- they have all sorts of sizes for posters, and they have pretty much every movie you can think of, whether it be classics or contemporary movies. MoviePosters.com is the best place to get your posters online. Use our coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. Again, Raiders15 to get 15% off at MoviePosters.com. Yeah, there's some awesome YouTube videos of like outtakes of There Will Be Blood of Daniel Day-Lewis on scenes and he he just keeps running ideas and ideas and staying in character and it's incredible how he does it and just like the ideas he comes with and then you you see what was chosen for the films because he probably tries a lot of different stuff and yeah. there's an awesome scene of them when they're having the steak he's having the steak with hw yeah, yeah. in the bar and he actually breaks camera character kind of or they all laugh on set but it's actually really cool because the kid who plays hw doesn't break character until he laughs yeah yeah and so so the thing about method acting with daniel day lewis is Yes, he's a method actor, but it's not like he doesn't know that there's a movie being filmed. You know what I mean? People, yeah. th- people think like, oh, he's Daniel Plainview or, or he's Abe Lincoln. Like, how do you direct him in a movie? Like, what's he? Is he confused by all the cam, all the tech gear and technology around him? But what he's doing is uh, he he is inhabiting the character um, in terms of like spiritually and mentally and physically. But he knows that he's making a movie and he knows that he's acting in each scene. So it's not so you they direct him as the character like Spielberg would text him and he and text him as Abe Lincoln you know what I mean yeah. so he's still like talking talking on the phone and texting these filmmakers in character still but he still understands that what he's doing it's not like he's lost his mind in the character you know what I mean yeah so it's, um his method acting I think it's a little blown out of proportion I think it gets a lot a lot more uh, press than it really needs and and the thing with his with his method acting is uh, people like to say it's pretentious and like. He's like being very smug, but it's like he's not the one who ever like who likes to talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's everyone else talks about him yeah. being a, an obsessive method actor. He never, I'm sure he never wants to talk about it. And also, it's his process. You know what I mean? That's it's how he gets to his wherever he needs to get to. The only way he can do it is if for each role he needs two years to prep to become this character. And that's just what he. That's how he does it. You know what I mean? I mean, he he chooses his roles very scarcely. I mean, he's already retired, but before that, he would pick a role like every four or five years, or whenever. Now, whenever PTA has a role for him every five years, yeah. And that gives him time to obviously shut it, shut it down and live his normal life because he's a very simple man. You know, he's he's not a a list actor who like goes out partying and loves the spotlight. And whenever he does, you you see interviews of him talking about method acting. It's not. For him, a pretentious thing again, like you said, it's his process, and for him, it's also it's more than that. It, it, to him, it's like living out 
life or seeing the world through other perspectives that just fascinates him so much. Yeah, I'm not sure he even watches the movies after they're made. I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. I mean, it's like Johnny Depp. It's the experience. Yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, just for him, it's just the act of being somebody else is just really appealing to him in a, in a way. And it's why he, he's probably the most skilled actor to ever do it. I mean, I think Denzel's number one all time. But like in terms of skill-wise, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, no, no contest. Daniel Day-Lewis has this, I think, to his why he's so good is because he has this obsessive quality to his work and it, it's not just acting this guy has actually um practiced different trades other than acting um for example after he retired for this first time um as an actor he became a, a cobbler in italy and he was a cobbler for like four years making shoes and he apprenticed with uh, with the uh, italy's most renowned cobbler for a couple of years and then he started making his own shoes with his own company and he did the same thing when he prepped for Phantom Thread. He he apprenticed with a costume designer for um, the New York uh, Ballet. I can't remember what it's called, um, the uh, ballet company there. And he, he apprenticed there with this um, costume designer for over a year. I, I just as his assistant and apprentice, learning everything he he can about the craft. And for example, like Last of the Mohicans, he, he learned how to hunt, how to fire that rifle, how to live off the land. And he just, when he has a, a goal, in mind, he just becomes obsessive until he becomes a master of whatever the craft or practice is. And he, that's a testament. That's why his acting is so good because he just commits wholeheartedly with every bit of him into whatever he's doing. And he created the most interesting character, I think, in the history of cinema with uh, Daniel Plainview. Possibly, again, the most like fleshed out character in cinema history. And PTA wrote the character specifically for Daniel Day-Lewis, although he had never met him at the time. And they eventually met up in New York and they discussed it over a couple of months getting to know each other. And then they decided to finally make the movie. And so PTA went off to finish the script in L.A. And then Daniel Day went back to Ireland to create the character. So he spent months and months creating Daniel, I mean, Daniel Plainview. And to build the character, obviously he read Oil. But again, it's just a loose uh, interpretation of the, of the story in the book. But he really got a sense of the character, what he would buy by reading actual letters from oil prospectors and oil men from the 19th and... 20th century who would send these letters to their family so he read those letters to, to understand how they talk understand how they live their lives and how they talk and and and, and worked and, and he did a lot of research too and he learned how los angeles actually used to be covered by oil derricks everywhere and these oil workers they lived in these little houses that were next door to the oil derricks they'd wake up and say bye to their family and they just walk over to the oil derricks and do their works it's and like so, a coal town yeah and so like la was ruled by oil derricks the entire landscape which is insane and so that, that's how that's the city was built on so much wealth well also the entire country was ruled by oil oil was the and still is if arguably the most important resource um ever since it was found and whoever had the whoever could monopolize the most oil property became extremely wealthy and the company actually one of the companies in this movie standard oil was a real company and they they became so successful they were broken up by the Senate because they were monopolized across the country, and off of there, when they after they were broken up by the government, um, Exxon, like uh, what are, what are the companies? Sunco, Sunco, all these all all these uh, oil companies, they were broke. They were remnants of the Standard Oil Company because it was so massive. And Daniel Plainview is a representation of uh, the capitalist nature of the turn of the century, where. Um, this was a new resource that was being discovered all over the place. No one knew where it all was, and so they were just searching for it across the country. 
in California, like you said, it ended up being one of one of the hot spots of the country for oil. And then whoever could get their hands on it first got the power. And according to PTA, Daniel Plainview is loosely based on three characters. One of them is actually a real oil tycoon, which I'll, I'll talk about last. And the first, the first character PTA based him off of is actually Count Dracula. And just think <laughs> of the opening of the film where it opens with Plainview in the darkness of this hole in this tunnel. He's away from sunlight and obsessively craves oil like blood. vampires crave blood because obviously the oil represents blood in the film and his enemy is also a preacher or a vessel for god despite being a false prophet obviously the second character he based him off is j arnold ross who is the character in the book oil obviously and the entire film again loosely based off that familiar elements include the quail hunting on the sunday ranch the character in evangelist uh, evangelist eli is also in the book too and um again but you like you said it's mostly about hw and his perspective yeah uh, the final inspiration for the character was real-life oil tycoon Edward Doheny. They have similar histories and backgrounds, he and Daniel Plainview. And actually, the mansion at the end of the film that Daniel Plainview lives in after he achieved all this wealth and success is actually Doheny's mansion. And that mansion's actually been used in a ton of movie productions. You would recognize it in a ton of different films. It's beautiful. Yeah, and in terms of uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's inspiration, his main inspiration for uh, the voice of Daniel Plainview was the great director John Huston, yeah. who made a lot of westerns in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And he's he John Huston is hands down one of the best uh, American film directors of all time. He he helped shape the way you would make films outside of the 40s and 50s. He became one of the most prominent voices in filmmaking for a long time. And he has this very specific kind of voice in the way he talks. And when he speaks, when he spoke, his his voice would just his words would just trail off for a little bit and and they would kind of like not end and he if you if you listen there's a lot of video of him online on YouTube check out John Houston like an interview or something and then watch Daniel Day Lewis in, in There Will Be Blood and it is very much a, a impersonation of John Houston in a way yeah and I love this character because to me a lot of this film and this character it's kind of like a person and a man who who sold his soul to the devil for success and with that he has sacrifices he has to give up and for example the film opens up with this man we don't know who he is yet just in the bottom of this tunnel in darkness by himself and he you can tell he's probably been digging these holes for years it's it's 19 it's 1898 um he looks like he's he's exhausted he's he's skinny he he has no help he probably can't afford help he probably put everything he has all of his money into this trip into this voyage into into a desert of nowhere of just this rocky tundra and um it's dark and and then, obviously, it's an amazing opening scene where you mentioned earlier, it's 15 minutes, no dialogue. Yeah. No dialogue at all. Yeah, and this this opening is terrific because, like you said, he's he's very skinny and weathered, so he's probably been doing this for a while. And also, he must have been trying all sorts of different avenues of making money before this, and now he's on his own. So I think he's kind of relatively new at digging for oil because he has no one with him. I mean, obviously, he's, he's never made a, a dime off of it. And this opening sequence is absolutely incredible and revolutionary in terms of modern cinema because it's kind of like its own movie in itself where Daniel Plainview is digging and then he finds gold but then as he's climbing out he falls down the hole and uh, breaks his breaks his leg and he's in the middle of the desert and he has to literally crawl out of the desert and you can make a, a movie in it on its own just with this story it yeah, would be a movie because yeah. it's actually silver by the way Silver, I know, sorry, I know someone's sorry. gonna get upset in the comments. Silver. Yeah, because like we just said, he's just he's probably been doing this for years. He breaks his leg, drags himself out, 
And then you just watch Daniel Plainview start to drag himself through this rocky, dry terrain. And, and what PTA and Ellsworth do is they just pan the camera up with Johnny Greenwood's eerie uh, high-string score. And we just see this rocky, small, hilly mountain terrain. And you can yeah. only imagine how many miles and how many hours did he have to go through to to get to that little blacksmith where he's getting his, his gold, I mean, his silver weighed and, and uh, money for it. And again, this is what I mean by selling your soul to the devil or it's not without sacrifice. This man didn't just become wealthy because he was an, he's an asshole and a greedy person. He went through hell. He, he crawled with a broken leg through no, who knows what, like how many people could have done that. It also gives him kind of um, some sort of uh, value as, as someone who did something amazing and, and so challenging. And it's like a sense of pride. And also it gives him sort of um, value as a character for an audience. Exactly, because if you see this character and he and he is able to accomplish that, then whatever he does for the rest of the movie, you can believe it, no matter what, no matter how uh, challenging or how uh, questionable or crazy it is, you'll believe that this character can do it because of what he did in the opening sequence of getting out of the desert with a broken leg. Like you said, you can make a movie about that. Yeah. You could, yeah. but you don't have to. PTA is like, I don't have to do that. Here's just the shot. And we're going to cut to him chilling with a brace, watching these guys check out his silver. With yeah. a rifle. Yeah, and just has this like smirk on his face and doesn't even care that he broke his leg. Yeah, and it's a great scene because this is him starting out because after this, he he has enough money from the silver to, to fund his own dig with other people working for him. This is where he is able to finally strike gold by striking an oil well, and it's his first well. And... Um, this it's also a very important moment be, moment because it's when um, we are introduced to his uh, eventual adoptive son uh, HW, who he adopts out of his own greed. Because the thing with Daniel Plainview is one of the one of the main themes of this movie, I think, is that gets by that people may not uh, relate to or, or think of is family, and family actually is very important to Daniel, but he has like this strange relationship with the idea of family because he adopts this this orphaned son this orphaned boy as a way to help sell himself as an oil man because what he's doing is he's going to landowner to landowner asking to buy their property um, and he thinks it will be easier to to sell himself if he has a young boy with him with the illusion that his wife died in childbirth and he tells the story to people when he when he's offering to buy their land and so he he adopts this boy and creates a family for himself out of pure um, business motivation and motivated purely by money. But then also, uh, he's he's very family has very important elements in this film in terms of when H.W. gets older and there's that accident and he goes deaf from the accident of the oil well. Um, Dan, once Daniel can't speak to the boy, or or hold this kind of like fatherly power over the boy because Daniel's Daniel's strength is his speech I think he's able to to convince anyone of anything he's a great salesman and so when he can't talk to the HW anymore he abandons him he sends him away and also when Tilford near the end of the film uh when he's selling his oil wells to Tilford and Tilford says um you should retire and spend time with your son um he after this mention of trying to tell him how to be a, a father Daniel threatens to kill him. Very abrupt, irrational way to react to someone giving you uh, familial advice. And then also he he murders Henry, who was pretending to be his own brother. 
and then weeps when he finds his brother's diary because he lost he his brother who had died earlier uh, he 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 lost that connection of a brother he could have had, and so he has very passionate emotions and driving motivations um, towards family, but he also can't help from pushing his family away in certain ways. Yeah, just like how he pushes HWA at the end, and again he he didn't even know he had a brother, but that's like the kind of person that. Daniel Plainview is, is he's just motivated on one thing, and that's his success and his wealth and being the most powerful person everywhere and being in control of everything. Like, it's number one for him is is wealth and power, but also control. And that's what, that's what a lot of this movie is about because it's really telling when they find out that they have this ocean of oil underneath them, and he, and he tells his, his, uh, his associate, he's like, why are you looking so grumpy for her? There's an ocean of oil below us and only I can get at it. Mm -hmm. So he's all about control for himself. And I think again, like you just said, how he can't control HW because he can't hear him. So that's why he, he pushes him away. Yeah, exactly. And, and Daniel is also a master manipulator and a master liar because he's able to, to lie to Eli and his father to buy the land as uh, he tells them that he wants to buy the land to give his son a dry climate to live in because he's sick. Whereas, like we are, we all know that he wants the land to drill the oil underneath it, and then he then he plays coy, saying like, "Oh, well, he knows, he knows people in the oil industry, and he can maybe get, see if he can muster up like a small crew or something." And then also, he lies to the people he purchases land from by saying that each W is his real son, and that his wife died in childbirth as a way to help sell himself, like we said earlier. And he also lies in his big monologues to towns. For example, in the big monologue, when he's speaking to the residents of Little Boston, he tells them that he's going to build a school, he's going to build farmland with crops to grow wheat so that everyone can have bread, he's going he's gonna to build uh, water wells everywhere. Irrigation. Irrigation. So he's promising, he, he promises all these townsfolk this incredible, these incredible improvements on their land as a way to get them to agree to let him purchase the land when ultimately he never had any intentions of doing these things because all he wanted was to get their land from them. He doesn't care about people. All he cares about is what he can get from people. And his lust for power, uh, it ultimately makes him unhinged and even disturbed in a lot of ways because he reveals later in the film when he's with uh, Henry that he wants to make enough money to get away from people. That's yeah, his intention. He hates people. He he has this anger towards them. He, he sees nothing in common with them. He even talks about them like they're different species of, of animal or, or being. And again, this is a person. He has no friends. He has no lovers, no partners. He's got this adopted son that, again, he just uses as a prop basically to buy land. Um, we don't know where he comes from. He, he doesn't really contact anyone unless it's someone who works for him. Um, he even lies to the other oil prospector. He sells, tells him to go east, which is a total yeah. lie. Um, because, again, he tells, he tells Henry he wants no one else to succeed. He wants to be the only person that succeeds. Not even his own son. When H.W. grows up and wants to start his own company, he ends up viewing his son as a competitor. And, and this is ultimately how they become estranged at the end of the film. And the ironic thing about Daniel is that at the after the course of the film, he acquires everything he wants. He acquires all the oil he can get his hands on, and he, he accumulates a great amount of wealth, and he does buy an estate to get away from people. And so he, he finally gets everything he wants, but then how does he spend his days? Firing a rifle at his furniture in his hallway. He's just, uh, he falls into madness um, because of his obsessive desire for power and for wealth and for oil, 
it drives him crazy and he he becomes he doesn't know what to do with himself he doesn't know what to do with himself when the motivations to to get oil and power are gone when he has everything he wants he doesn't know how to live i think it's maybe not so much that i think it's like like he tells his his half brother fake half brother that he hates everyone i think maybe he even hates himself too because he obviously spends all of his time just drinking and doing self-destructive behaviors and again this is a person who i like to say sold his soul to the devil to get fortune and success and so i think daniel he might even hate himself as much as he hates everybody else yeah and i think you're right he's very self-destructive in that the final line of the film i really love is after he kills eli he says i'm finished He's, he's saying that he is finished because he got everything he wanted. And then he pushed his son away, his final piece of family. So now he's alone. And then he killed his greatest adversary, Eli. And so there's nothing left to do. He really is just finished with his life. Speaking of Eli, want to talk about him? Yeah, I would love to. So Eli, I, I love this character. And I think Paul Dano is phenomenal in this movie. Obviously, it's so hard to even just act alongside Daniel Day-Lewis, I'm sure. But I think he does a really great job. And I think he probably was a snub not getting an Oscar nomination for this role because he's really good in it. And um, he, I think Eli's, he's a lot more similar to Daniel than he would ever want to admit or than, than PTA shows you in the first half of the film probably because as Daniel grows in power and strength from the money, land, and oil, Eli's also growing in, in strength, in spiritual strength from consuming basically like the souls of his fo- followers in a way and getting their emotional support and also... As much as Daniel is bleeding the land dry, Eli tries to siphon as much money from Daniel. So they're both con men in a way because he's obviously a false prophet. And his goal basically is to extract money from, from Plainview because he's he's basically letting him do this because he wants money as well. But he uses the guise of religion and his preaching as his mean of finding success and fame. Yeah, you're you're almost completely right because you get to add on to that that Eli is a reflection of Daniel. They're the same person. And like you said, Daniel is an oil man and Eli is a man of God. And oil is uh, Daniel's trying to to, ga- to gather as much oil as possible to gain his power, and then Eli is trying to gather as much uh, fo- as many followers of faith to get his power. Because his his church can only grow in power with more with a larger congregation to donate money, and so they both are are um, trying to gather as much power as possible, and their their storylines converge because um, it's conflicting with each other. Where Daniel Plainview's workers are um, are there's that accident at the oil well because they were the the men were spending too much time at the church. Um, and so there, there's this back and forth where they're kind of warring with each other for the power of the townspeople. You know what I mean? And so they actually are pretty much the same character, but they have different um, paths that they go on and different ways of gathering their power. Yeah, and the war starts when Daniel refuses Eli's uh, offer to bless the well. Yeah. And he lets Mary instead come up and turn it on I the love set. That scene. And it's a great scene yeah. because you can see in Eli's eyes that he just became an arch nemesis of Daniel Plainview and he'll do everything he can to bring him down. Yeah. And just to keep going on what you said, how they're the same character, I think one of my favorite back-to-back shots in the film which shows that is Daniel is just spending a day. He's sitting down on a, on a chair and um, the oil derrick's just pulling oil up. And then 
he looks over at at Eli's church, the Church of the Third Re- Revelation. Yeah. And um, he pulls out a little telescope, and he and he's he's kind of like mumbling to himself and just like sitting there. And then he he looks through his telescope, um, at the church. And inside the church, it's being built. But Eli, he's also just kind of mumbling to himself and yeah. like moving around. So again, they are counterparts and also very similar characters. Yeah. And in terms of uh, Paul Dano, he did a great job with this movie. I disagree with you. I don't think he was good enough to get a nomination in this film. But it's not his own. It's not his fault. There's actually uh, a really great story of how he was cast in this movie because Paul Dano was actually a last-minute casting addition to play Eli in the film because originally... Paul Dano had already been cast to play the the uh, Paul Sunday, the first one we see who offers the information about Little Boston to Daniel Plainview. That was supposed to be his only scene in the movie. He was just going to play Paul Sunday, just this one scene, and then that's it. But what happened was the actor who was cast as Eli Sunday, um, no, it's, stories aren't really clear about what happened. If he was either he was fired or he left the project, but there was something wrong with the production with him in the role. I can't remember the actor's name, but he left the project after, I think, four days of filming as Paul Sunday. And so since they're in the middle of production, like, they need an actor to fill the spot to play Paul Sunday because, they, like, what are they going to do? And so Paul Thomas Anderson asked um, Paul Dano, could you take on this other role and be Paul Sunday as well? And Paul Dano agreed. And so uh, Paul Thomas Anderson changed the script, whereas these brothers became tw- identical twins to help explain why the same actor is playing them. So they're not ori- they weren't originally twins when they started filming. And so Paul Dano only had 4 days of prep before his first scene as Eli Sunday. And so he did a great job but he had no time to prepare yeah. for this role. You know what I mean? I mean he, I'm sure he was learning his lines like the night before his scenes. Yeah, especially cuz he has a lot of long monologues yeah. and, and emotional scenes and, but he still did a great job though. That's really smart from PT. I never heard that story. I had no yeah. idea. That's really cool because I just I love the aspect of them being identical twins because when we first obviously meet Paul Sunday and he's offering the the $500 cash for information and then when we finally get to the Sunday ranch and and then uh, Mary brings them the goat's milk, and then they're on their way. And then while they're setting up their tent, Eli Sunday comes over to them, and it's obviously yeah. it's Paul. It looks just like Paul yeah. Sunday. And you can see Daniel Day Lewis's reaction is like, "What?" Because I the first time I saw this movie, I spent like the the next hour, I would say, <laughs> it, "Are they twins? Is this all like a giant rue that Eli did just to get some cash over his father's head, just to get a quick quick funding for his church?" But then we we don't because we don't find out until like an hour and a half in the film that they're actually brothers when this is when Eli is castrating his father at the dinner table after Daniel just sho- shoved him in all the mud yeah. when, he said, when he talks about his dumb brother. Yeah, exactly. And that's the reason for that is because Paul Thomas Anderson doesn't want to overly ex- over-explain things. He'd rather you figure them out as the film goes along and progresses. So. And I just think it adds a very cool element to yeah. the story and the characters. Exactly. And Eli becomes Daniel's main adversary in the film because he grows in power um, by using the word of God um, and it becomes an antagonist to Daniel. And like you said, he's trying to get as much, he's trying to milk as much money from Daniel as possible. Um, and they butt heads a few times. And one of my favorite scenes is the scene where um, Daniel and his, um, some of his men are meeting and they have this giant ocean of wa- of oil. They have this giant ocean of oil just in the in the valley because there's nowhere for them to put it. So they're just they're just dumping it into this huge like lake of oil in the middle of the valley. And it's an amazing moment where Eli confronts Daniel, um, demanding the money that he promised him when he first bought the land, the five thousand dollars for his church, which Daniel agreed to. And this is after H. W. lost his hearing, and then Daniel just 
physically assaults Eli, throws him into the oil, and then in front of other people, yeah, and just starts smacking him around, saying like, "How are you? If you're if you're such a a prophet and a man of God, why don't you make my son here again?" So he's he's calling him out for his his uh his lack of um for his real self not being a true um like religious figure, and this is the moment where. Daniel, I think, finally gains power over Eli. Yeah, and actually, that scene, I think, has the opening of it has one of the most beautiful shots in the film where you're talking about that little lake of oil. They perfectly get a beautiful reflection of the sky and the blue sky and the clouds just reflected in this dark black pit of, of oil. Mm-hmm. And I think the oil, it obviously wasn't real oil, but I think— It's one it, of the few special effect shots. Yeah, it was the oil was, was created with, I think, what is used— in uh, McDonald's chocolate milkshakes, like yeah. some, some chocolate syrup. Ugh, that's yeah. gross. There's a lot. That, that's that's what you put in your body. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> and then they have their their final confrontation at the end of the film, which is uh, one of my favorite scenes in all of movies. This is it's an amazing scene because uh, Daniel. It, it's very funny and very dark, and it's, it's this blend of those two i those two um, tones in such a a brilliant way. Because it's it's funny because Daniel has become just like this ridiculous recluse who's kind of like he reminds me of Howard Hughes. You know what I mean? He's, he's like mm-hmm. losing his mind. He's becoming unhinged. And and when and when Eli comes to see him, he he know when Eli hints that um, he's having money problems, Daniel sees an opportunity where he can take advantage of him and, and ridicule him, and he does it right. And he does it immediately. And he says he says that line: "Are, are things not good for you?" And there's that iconic moment when. Eli is begging Daniel to take his well in Little Boston, the the bandy track, the bandy well. Daniel does the infamous line, "I drink your milkshake. I drink it up." It's I think one of the most iconic lines in the movie, and that leads to the great confrontation between them. Yeah, I love the scene. It's it's the best in the movie probably. And um just to talk about how you said that the way that Daniel finally gained full control over Eli was was beating him in front of those people at, next to the oil. And then this was kind of like what Daniel did to him too. It was be- before the physical part with the, the pin where he knows that Eli is probably broke mm-hmm. despite him wearing his best Sunday best suit mm-hmm. with, the, with the large cross, yeah. talking about how he's found success in radio. But um, And then Daniel knows it just starts messing with him when he's talking about how— because Eli wants to sell him the bandy track, the infamous bandy track, which Daniel never purchased, which was what he built the pipeline on instead. Um, So he never actually purchased the bandy track to get the oil underneath it. And and Eli thinks that this is an opportunity for him to finally get wealth because he he hasn't been successful like Daniel. And— Daniel lets him go on and agrees to a hundred thousand signing bonus and to sell the, sell the bandy tract as a as an advisor for the band. He's like, "How long will it take? We'll take a long. We'll, we'll take a long. Two weeks at most. Two weeks." <laughs> and then, um, but there's one one uh, stipulation to the deal is that he forces Eli to admit that he's a false prophet and that God is a superstition, and he makes him recite this over and over, just like the monologue, just like how he made. Daniel recite those those phrases during his baptism at the church in order to build the pipeline on the bandy tract. And it's an amazing scene because this is just Daniel getting the final one up on Eli before he kills him and yeah, beats him to and death. Having and having fun with he him. He explains drainage. Drainage. Nice drink it up. <coughs> oh man, it hurts. Drainage. And so yeah, he basically wins this struggle between him and Eli and um, I think killing him wasn't enough. He needed to ridicule him exactly. and tear him down emotionally 
and take away his like his 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 uh, humanity. Yeah, and Eli, he's given into this you know capitalist nature and, and need to be successful and and greed and wealth. Whereas, like I said again, Daniel sold his soul years before that mm. for his success and for his oil, and he accepted that. But now Eli's accepting it too late. And then it leads to the, the the famous confrontation where he attacks Eli with the bowling pins. It, again, it's so it's funny but horrifying at the same time. Oh, and also one of the best parts of the scene is where Eli constantly called himself the third revelation. Now Daniel's calling himself the third yeah. revelation. He's yeah. like, I am yeah. the third revelation because yeah. in a way he was the real prophet. Yeah, and Daniel never believed in religion, um, and he always saw that uh, Eli— because he doesn't believe in religion, he he always saw Eli as a he says a false prophet and just like a, a a showman, and he just performs for his congregation rather than really preaching with your song and dance. Yeah, that's why he says it was <laughs> one goddamn hell of a show, and that's why he does. Yeah, your song and dance, and then I just I love the ending of this movie because it doesn't have anything to do with the overall story. It doesn't have to do anything with the the empire that Daniel has built, it, but it's just these two characters who have been clashing, and it has led to this final moment, this final confrontation, and I think that. Daniel, he accomplished everything he wanted, but he's still hungry for more power. And what more power can you have than to take another person's life? And so I think that when he when he saw the opportunity to to finally do something, he just went right for it and just and without hesitation killed Eli. I told you I would eat I you. I told you I would I'm eat you. Bury you underground. <laughs> he says so many great my, lines. My favorite him. line is when he lies to him and says that he paid Paul five thousand dollars cash in cash hand. Cash in hand. It's like he paid him five hundred dollars, <laughs> but he's lying just to mess he, with he, Eli. He's got three wells producing five thousand dollars a week. <laughs> he's like tapping Prosperous him. Prosperous little business. <laughs> <laughs> he's tapping him. <laughs> It's an amazing ending, and I just I absolutely love this ending. It's so great, and there's there's so many iconic moments in this movie. And the, there's like we said about the cinematography, there's a lot of great moments that are um, catapulted into like incredible pieces of cinema because of the cinematography. And, and some some of my favorite shots, there's so many, but some of my favorites are there's the shot of Daniel uh, in the ocean after. He and he and Henry are, are are sitting on the beach in the coast, and he goes in the water, and there we have a shot of Daniel watching him, and the camera goes half underwater and half above water, and then the the underwater body portion of Daniel is gigantic, and then his head is small, above water is showing the the power this man has in the situation and in 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 in, in the country. This man has just gained so much power, and then also. A great shot is Daniel staring at the burning oil well after his partner goes to check on HW, and, and Daniel's just staring, like with bloodlust at the at the burning oil of the well. And he's and he's basked in darkness. And yeah. He's also covered in oil. Covered in oil. Doesn't even look human. And then uh, another great shot is before the water the water shot also on the beach when he and Henry are sitting on the beach. They're both sitting beside sitting beside each other, um, and we're the he films it from the side. And Henry is um, in the foreground, and he's in the shadow because Daniel is learning that he has been lying to him about being his brother. And Daniel is sitting in the sunlight because he is in the right of the situation. And it's an amazing way to, de to detail the dynamic of the situation. And then, um, my, obviously, uh, another great shot is when Daniel's uh, chasing, is carrying HW across the land after the explosion of the well. It's great music. And then I think maybe my favorite shot is is the 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 opening shot when Daniel is just digging, hacking into the the hard earth 
inside the hole he's dug with his pick over and over and over again with that music building up. And I think it was such a brilliant way to open the film and really show you with just one shot who this character was. And I want to talk real quick about about blood yeah. and how obviously the title insinuates that there's going to be blood at some point. There will be blood. And obviously oil represents blood. Mm. But this is, again, in a way, a horror film. And at some point we're waiting on bated breath. I think the first time I watched this movie, I was just constantly waiting. Like, where's the death going to come? Where's the killing going to come? And obviously he kills the the person who was pretending to be his half-brother, Henry. And this is a great character to come into Daniel's life because, again, you talked about family. And when he shows up and he knows this this history of Daniel, and Daniel like makes him almost like a partner kind of. He's, he's there at the meetings with Standard Oil. He's he's kind of an essential figure in his, in his business operation now and a person he can actually talk to. And also Daniel's partner for years becomes, I think, jealous of, of Henry because yeah. he's asking in one scene, is Henry going with you to that state? To Standard we, Oil. Yeah, to Standard Oil. And it's like this guy has been with Daniel for so long. And then Henry shows up and it shows Daniel's um, desire for familial connections to make Henry uh, like a full-blown partner uh, by his side at all times. But it's ironic because the only person who doesn't trust Henry is HW, and he lights that fire underneath his bed because he thinks there's something odd about it, and there's something. Well, he doesn't light a fire under his bed. Yeah, he does. He he lights the trail of. of it's in the center of the room. Well, it's it shows up like right under him. No, it's in the center of the room. But he's doing it while he's going through the guy's things, and then he and he lights the fire, right at him. To I wake I him just up. I disagree. I don't think that's what he was doing. Well, I see that. Well, for me, I see that as as HW just doesn't like this guy for some reason. I saw that as HW just acting out because his his he can't hear anything and he's just. Uh, rebelling in some way, and he maybe wants, he's jealous of. He of, wants to cause destruction. Maybe or he's something. jealous of yeah. Henry because yeah. there's there's scenes where he's like looking at Henry. Yeah, oddly, yeah. but uh, it, the fire is not like under his bed. Else, it's it's in the center. And um, and then we have the great journey of of Henry and Daniel after he strikes that deal with Union Oil for the pipeline instead of with Standard Oil, just buying out all of his wells. And then they they go through the Bandy Tract and they start prospecting and surveying the land for the pipeline without even getting permission. Mm. And a great score from John Greenwood here, and then amazing shots, cinematography, of these beautiful wide shots of this country and landscape. And then and then this is where we find out that Henry is a liar, and Daniel's talking about the memories of their childhood, and Henry seems to not... Take under- them to the peach tree dance. Take them to the liquor, pe- liquor, liquor them up. Liquor up. Get them liquored up and take them to the peach tree dance. But Henry doesn't seem to understand the, the kind of joke that he's telling because he should know what the peach tree dance is yeah, if he's if from grew the, up same in the same place. Yeah. And um, when Henry doesn't react, this causes Daniel to question their blood relation. They have that amazing shot where he kind of just looks at Henry again. And he has this is when he's swimming in the ocean, staring at him, and then watching him at the brothel. And I also think that that's the, that's the final catalyst for him understanding that Henry's not his real brother. Because I think the first um, sign is that Henry is so much different from Daniel. Because Daniel is defined by his successes and his, his drive and his will to to overcome any obstacle whereas Henry has been defined his whole life by failure and in crime and so I think that Daniel initially before this moment also had reservations because of how different of a person this guy is from himself and he's talking and this is the only person he's ever opened up to talking about his hate for people and his anger yeah. and uh, Henry says he doesn't have any of that but Daniel says that well if it's in me it's in you yeah but they're so polar opposite so he doesn't recognize anything in this guy and then Daniel 
wakes him up with the gun and asks him to name that that farm in their hometown, uh, which he can't. And then obviously Daniel shoots him, mm-hmm. and he digs a hole and buries him. And this is the this is the first instance of the blood that he sacrifices. Again, this is the man who sold his soul. And also a, a a moment here that I really love is that when he digs the hole. Um, water starts forming in the bottom, and it, it because it's nighttime, it kind of looks like oil. So it kind of looks like he's burying Henry in oil. Yeah, and I bet you that Daniel Day-Lewis is such a method actor that he really did this to somebody. <laughs> he really <laughs> killed the actor. <laughs> he's like, Paul, why don't I just shoot him with a real gun? <laughs> but again, this movie, it's I think the ultimately the main theme of this movie is power, and it's all these situations and, and moments and where Daniel is confronted with obstacles or other characters that um, jeopardize his power and then he is always able to overcome whatever uh, is uh, is brought up to take power in whatever situation it is and like this for this exa- for this example he finds out that this man has been lying to him which means that the man had power the whole time because the man because Henry was using Daniel so he D- Daniel didn't have the power in the situation so when he discovers this, he kills them to take the power back. So he's always taking power in any situation he can. Power and control. Yeah. We could obviously talk about There Will Be Blood for hours, so let's, let's just move on to some fun facts, and then we'll move on to No Country. And I think my favorite fact about this film, which actually relates to No Country for Old Men, is they were, they were both filming in West Texas in a lot of the scenes, and when the, the greatest set piece of the oil derrick exploding with oil and the giant black smoke of the fire is in the sky and there will be blood there was this actually forced no country to, for old men to shut down production for a day because they could actually see this black cloud of smoke in the sky oh no way dylan frazier who plays uh, daniel's son hw in the film um the the film crew um and the casting directors they were searching for a young boy that could fit this this character perfectly and they found this kid dylan at a, at a local school who um, knew how to hunt and he was very athletic and he seemed to be a perfect fit for this role. But what happened was his mother had never heard of Danny Day-Lewis, not a big movie fan, so she watched the film Gangs of New York, and she was terrified of Daniel Day-Lewis and did not want her son anywhere near him, afraid that he was actually like a horrible person in real life. And then the, the, stu- the, the producers heard about this and immediately sent them the film Age of Innocence, the, this Martin Scorsese film, which is a, a period piece romance with Daniel Day-Lewis as a supporting character with Michelle Pfeiffer. And he's very gentlemanly and kind and loving in that, in that movie. So they sent her that movie to watch like, oh, he, he's, very, he's, act, he's not evil. He's not built a butcher. Like here's him being very nice and, and gentlemanly and, and loving. And then after she saw this film, she agreed to let her son act with Daniel Day-Lewis in the scenes. If you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share us with your movie friends or, or your friends in general. Let them know that there's an awesome movie program for people out there because we're growing mostly word of mouth thanks to all of you. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Hit the notification bell. Leaving those five-star reviews is so helpful. And we love, love, love to read those five-star reviews. I look at them all the time. It makes me so happy. Yeah, it's great. Except for those one ones. One stars. <laughs> And support us monthly on patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patrons get special perks like personalized messages, personalized video messages, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. No Country for Old Men, released in 2007, directed by Ethan and Joel Cohen. Written by Ethan and Joel Cohen, based on the book No Country for Old Men by, by Cormac McCarthy. This film stars Javier Bardem, Tommy Lee Jones, Josh Brolin, Woody Harrelson, 
and Kelly McDonald. This movie had a budget of $25 million in a worldwide box office of $171 million. After discovering a drug deal gone wrong and more than $2 million in cash, local hunter and veteran Llewellyn Moss runs with the money but is chased by a deranged killer while an old sheriff tries to save him. Like we said earlier, No Country has a lot in common with There Will Be Blood, but it also has a lot of differences. Like This film is a Western in the, in the most classic sense of the word. It's just set not in the typical uh, period of Western films. It's set in, uh, was it the 60s? In, I think it's 70s. 70s. 70s um, and uh, so it, it takes the uh, traditional Western outlaw stories and puts it into a more contemporary setting, which I really love. And also, this film has a depiction of one of the greatest villains we've ever seen in cinema. Yeah, again, best book adaptation I've ever seen in terms of being faithful to the novel, the dialogue, a lot of it's verbatim again, effectively bringing a new meaning and depth to the to the dialogue, though, with these actors. And when we're talking about the story and the directors, the Coen brothers, also assume we're talking about Cormac McCarthy for writing this story and writing these incredible characters. Um, so I think, just assume we're talking about Cormac at the same time. Amazing author. This guy's written some some of the best American uh, modern literature, like Blood Meridian. Um, I love that book. The Road. The Road's fantastic. And the attention to detail in this movie is absurd. And these, these are great filmmakers. Like, little things like worn-out souls on the boots of the man who bleeds out against that tree. Because obviously, obviously those, uh, those boots aren't meant for the desert climate. Um, they also have an incredible knack and genius skill of casting like local residents who feel like you're in that community when you see them like they're not actors they're not like perfect specimens who move to LA in pursuit of acting these are real people in real lives and real communities and th their ability to cast people like that just adds so much depth and realism to the story and also to the dialogue because they're able since they live in those environments and they're locals they have the dialect perfect and so no one's acting trying to get the dialect and the accent right, these people already speak with the accent, so it, it, it takes you more into the realism of the movie itself. In the Coen brothers, a lot of people might not know this, they also edit all of their films, and they have incredible pacing, specifically in this film. They use a pseudonym. Yeah, it's uh, like t Rains or something. Yeah, some, yeah. It's some funny name, but they edit all their movies, and um, this movie is a slow-paced thriller, and... Not quite in terms long takes like there are words where there will be blood, but again, great editing this movie. And overall, I, this movie, when I watch it, a lot of it's about fate versus chance. Um, obviously, this evil character of Anton Chigurh operates on this level of fate and in introducing himself into to people's lives and evil and giving them basically 50-50 shots at life. Um, regret also, like Tommy Lee Jones' character, the sheriff, Ed Tom, he regrets not being able to help Llewellyn in the end. Uh, greed and chance, taking a chance by grabbing that satchel of money and running. And also evil. In this movie, it, it focuses on this evil character and how how it's new to this world and this fast-changing environment, this fast-changing world where these old men don't recognize the world they live in anymore. And this film also has a, a very similar opening to, no, to uh, There Will Be Blood where it's very minimal dialogue for the first 15 minutes and... Uh, well, first it starts with a narration by Tommy Lee Jones, but after that it shows uh, Anton Sugar in a couple of scenes where first he he is arrested and then he kills the deputy and then he he steals someone's car, and it's an amazing way to to show you who this character is, um, how capable he is, how ruthless he is, 
how sociopathic he is because when he when he chokes the deputy and the the man dies, he seems to uh, exhale in in pleasure once it's done. You, Javier Bardem has like this smirk on his face when he when he's done with his deed. And also that scene, like you said, they're the Coen brothers and their attention to detail. I think the, the one of the most amazing shots of this movie is that shot when he's strangling the deputy and you see you, it's nothing it's something you've never seen in a movie before but would probably happen and it's something that's probably seen in a lot of crime scenes which is scuff marks because uh obviously these two are struggling on the floor on the tile floor and there are scuff marks all over the place because it's such a, a violent scene and i just think that's something i've never seen in a movie before and the first time i saw this scene i was like blown away by that detail in the film before that yeah like you said it opens up with with tommy lee jones character sheriff ed tom bell and he's he gives these sporadic voiceovers and he bookends the movie with them um in the first one he's talking about how he sent a teenager to the electric chair for killing his 14 year old girlfriend and uh, uh a lot of people argued that it was a crime of passion he's he's a kid and he should have a shot at life but ed tells how when he talked to the boy that he was just a killer and that if he got out, he'd do it again and he'd just keep killing and he knew he was going to hell. Be there in 15 minutes. And Ed tells another story throughout the film, another one of, of this couple who run a hotel and they kill people in the residence and they, they sell all their goods and they just bury them in the in the yard. And again, the theme, a major theme of the film is he doesn't recognize the world he's in anymore. You know, he, too much time has passed and 21st cent, the 20th century the world was changing fast, rapidly. Every year was different. And, you know, they talk about how they see these kids with green hair and bones. Not that there's anything wrong with having green hair and bones in your nose. But, again, these these older generations of people who've been around for 60, 70 years, they don't recognize where they are anymore. So, yeah, so I, you're absolutely right in that point. But I think that Ed Tom is actually mistaken with how he's, how he's looking at things and in, in his perspective of the world because in his eye— um, and he says it. The his storyline is basically, like you said, he's having trouble uh, understanding the world now, and especially when he comes up against Anton Chigurh and also those stories you mentioned. It seems as though he doesn't understand the evil that's happening in the world, and it seems like someone like him, he's just not cut out for it anymore because it's new evil. But ultimately, he's mistaken because when he speaks to his brother at the end of the film. Um, his brother tells him this is nothing new. He tells that story about the Native American attack on their um, family member's home. And what he's saying is that uh, there's always been evil in the world. There have always been men like Anton Sugar, and there have always been killers like that couple and, and that young uh, teenager in the other story. Um, and it's the world isn't changing. It's just that maybe Ed Tom isn't cut out for handling evil anymore because the evil has always been in in mankind's history throughout all of time there's always been evil and there's always been death and there's always been killing and and Anton Sugar is nothing new I think that Ed Tom just is uh mistakenly viewing it as the world is changing but really it's not and these yeah exactly I, I really think he's I really like changed, that he's changing which is why his perspective thinks that the world is changing because because Ed Tom has changed I think you're right and these stories that he tells about these these killers they they really set up this character of Anton Sugar who's a completely evil man. It's kind of like amazing how horrible of a villain he is. And one of the best villains ever we've ever had the privilege of seeing on, on screen. And he's so interesting. And Javier Bardem knocks this role out of the park. He got the Oscar for it. Well-deservedly so. And uh, I know the Coen brothers cast him because he he doesn't speak English very well, which he told them. I mean, 
He uh, he doesn't like violence, which he told them. And these were some of the reasons why they, they cast him, because he's such a talented actor. And he's just as smart as he is psychotic. He's a maniac. He he ties up all loose ends he comes across, which is why he, he lives his life as a, a ghost in this ether of criminality. But he's also a firm believer in chance and fate. And he plays that coin game, which for him is a way to justify his desire to kill people because he wants to kill people. You know he does, but he he uses this coin flip as a way to say, it's not me, it's your decision. I just came here just like this coin came here. It's up to you when he doesn't have to introduce this coin, doesn't have to introduce this situation. Well, so you're right, but it's not anyone's decision. What he's doing is when he's doing the coin flip, it's he's taking the, the responsibility out of his hands because he does the coin flip with people that don't deserve to die. So like that man in the gas station, the clerk, and then uh, Carla Jean at the end of the film, he does the coin flips with them because they aren't um, parts of his duty or his job. But what happens is that man in the gas station noticed that his plates are from Dallas. So then he asks him a question, which is obviously um, Anton's a very smart man and he, he should not carry, he shouldn't, he doesn't want to leave any loose ends. So a witness who saw that someone from Dallas came could beg could drive people to Dallas investigating the killing. So it, it makes him uh, put the man up for death because he doesn't deserve to die, but he's put himself in the situation. And, and to absolve himself of the responsibility of choosing whether or not to kill the man, he lets fate decide. So that way it's not Anton's responsibility anymore. It's just fate's responsibility. Yeah, that's he, does, what... he does the same thing with Carla Jean where he, he promised Llewellyn he would kill her, but rather than since she doesn't deserve to die, He's going to leave it up to fate to decide whether she dies or lives. And it's, it's, uh, Anton lives by this strict moral code. It's like the Harvey Dent two faced moral code of, of right and wrong. It's not so much about justice, but more about taking the decision out of killing someone. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? It's an amazing dialogue by Cormac McCarthy and then interpreted by the Coen brothers. And again, yeah, he, he's very intelligent. He ties up loose ends and some other examples of his, his very smart. High intellect is testing out that motel room to prepare for breaking into the other one that he thinks uh, the Llewellyn is in. Yeah, he, he examines the flaws of the rooms where people could hide. He bursts in to see, like, if I burst in internal light, what's it look like? So he, he plays things out. And it seems like he's been in every situation he's been in a dozen times. Like, it seems like he's been in handcuffs a dozen times knows how to get out. It seems like he's been injured multiple times and has to has had to tend to his wounds before multiple times. And also someone who's been as successful in that job for as long as he probably has, he's only survived this long because of how astute and intelligent he is in preparation as well. And he has no emotions. He has no empathy. He's basically not human. He's like the Terminator in a way. And people are just pawns to him. He's also smart about who he kills, taking no chances ever with witnesses. Um, like when he's asking Llewellyn's trailer manager where Llewellyn works, and she won't give him an answer. And you can tell he's about to kill her. Yeah. But then he hears a toilet flush. So then he looks at the toilet flush. Then he just leaves. So he's aware of when he it would be a bad decision to try and kill someone. So right there, um, he could have killed the woman if she was alone pretty easily. But if there's another person, that's a, a, a variable that he's not prepared for. So he's only willing to kill and, and carry out these acts when, he's feel, when he feels that he's fully pre prepared and ready for them. And his method of killing is also virtually untraceable using that that gas tank with the cattle stun gun. No one knows what it is. They think it's a bullet, but there are no bullets inside the heads or the bodies. And Carson Wells 
character played by Woody Harrelson compares him to the bubonic plague. And you can really get a sense of the monster that this person is. And again, very few people have even seen him alive besides Carson Wells. Yeah, and, and this is an unbelievable performance. And I don't think many actors could have done what Javier did in... Obviously, it catapulted him to to fame in America, but he was already a big star in Spain. He's a, he was, he's probably he was probably the most prominent actor in Spain at the time. And uh, with this performance, he actually became the first actor to ever win the Best Supporting Actor at the Academy Awards, the Screen Actors Guild, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes, and the Critics Choice Awards. It had never been done before, like a clean sweep for supporting actor for for the awards season and. I mean, he deserves every accolade he got for this movie. And one of my favorite aspects to the character is just the look of him, especially the hair. And the hair, it's just like this weird bob haircut. You know what I mean? And the Coens found a photo. They were looking through photo books of, of Texas, um, like a bunch of photo books, and they were in a photo book of a brothel from like the 1950s or 60s. And, and in one of the photos, they saw this man with this very strange haircut, like this, this bob haircut, and it just looked strange on a man um, at that time period. And so they decided that, that would be the hair for Anton Chigurh in the film. And when they cut Javier's hair like that, um, they thought it was perfect. Although Javier Bardem said it was awful because when they were offset and like him and Brolin would go out drinking or something, he's like, no matter what I did with the hair, I could never make it look good. And so he was like, I'm never going to get laid while I'm making this movie. And the Coen brothers are like, yes, that's exactly what we want because we want it to look creepy and He's a very menacing person, and not just the hair, the eyes, and yeah. look in his eyes at all times. It he's looks pale. like he has no soul. Yeah. Um, you can't really tell where he's from. You can assume he's he's probably from Mexico because we're talking about on the border. Yeah. He definitely has an accent. Um, and that smile, the like evil, soulless smile he gives because he just ha- is having so much fun. And also, again, I, I compare him a lot to the Terminator because there's a scene where scenes where he's looking for the, the cash and he's using the transponder and he's just driving endlessly in the night. You can assume this guy hasn't slept in days because that's all he's doing. He's, he's not sleeping. He's not eating. He's not doing anything but looking for that money. Yeah, this job is what he's perfectly suited for. And he even calls himself the perfect tool because when he finds out that his um, employer sent several different parties looking for the money, he after he killed him, he told the accountant that it was a mistake because all you have to do is just send the one perfect tool, which is him. And uh, according to uh, an article by Business Insider, a group of psychiatrists studied 400 movies, and in these movies, they identified 126 psychopathic characters throughout film, and they chose Javier Bardem's character of Anton Chigurh as being the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath. Another clever thing that he does when he's about to kill people is he takes his shoes off, so he just walks with his socks because you can't hear him, his steps. It's something I've always wanted to see in a movie. Yeah, yeah, because it, it makes it total sense. sense. If I'm going to kill someone, I'm going to take off my shoes so they don't hear me. Especially with the hardwood floors. He's always aware of his feet, and like he's always avoiding blood puddles like when he kills Carson Wells, and he, he lifts his feet up at the last moment, and he checks his boots at the end of the movie after we can assume he definitely killed Carla Jean. Well, so there's this thing. He doesn't like blood. And he always wants to be clean from blood. So yeah, there's a there's actually a list of a bunch of clues. So the first one is um, he draws the shower curtain before he kills that third man, member of the cartel, so that when he shoots him, the blood splatters on the curtain rather than himself. And then after he he kills the Mexicans in the hotel, 
he takes his socks off because he got blood on his socks. And then, um, like you said, when he after he kills Carson Wells, when the blood is pouring towards his feet, he puts his feet up on the bed. And then, like you said, um, at the last at, at the end of the film, after he kills Carla Jean, he checks his boots for blood splatter on the bottom of them. So there's this. I can actually think of a couple more too. Yeah. Like when he's in the bathtub cleaning his wound, and he won't look at his wound when he's cleaning it with the water. Yeah. And also when he's washing his hands of the blood with the handcuffs. Yeah. So there might be this thing where he just is has an adverse reaction to the sight of blood. It's either that, or maybe he's just trying to avoid all traces of evidence. Too. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows. And he's just so capable of handling any situation. For example, when when Llewellyn injures him with the buckshot in his thigh, and he has to repair himself, the Coen brothers just film this brilliantly. Where first he um, causes the car to explode outside the drugstore, which is one of my favorite scenes. And he goes in and he gets all the supplies he needs in the pharmacy. And then he, in the hotel room, he spends hours um, cleaning his wound, pulling out all the shrapnel, and then and then uh, I think he put steroids in his in his uh leg as well for healing morphine morphine as well so he's very intelligent and capable of repairing himself and it's an amazing scene because you can only imagine how painful that injury is especially like when he sits in the bathtub or like when he's trying to pull his jeans off and he's trying to or he's trying to kick his boot off and he's not looking at he's not looking at but you can see like he's experiencing it is a great intense amount of pain but he's hiding it because he's such a a str- like a, a unique person where he can withstand such a great amount of pain and uh it's obviously bothering him but he's not even he's barely even showing any signs of pain i think it's because like i said earlier it seems like he's been in every one of these situations a dozen times it's, it seems like he's been in handcuffs seems like he's been fatally wounded and he's just had to deal with these situations he's probably killed a hundred people in so many different ways that's why he's always so well prepared and knows what to do what to expect and how to prepare for each killing and i think probably the most iconic thing about anton sugar is his air gun which you said he uses to kill people but also it's the way he breaks through locks when he needs to enter a room or a building and it's such a brilliant and terrifying situation that when uh for example when when Llewellyn is in his hotel room and the lights go out and he's just waiting at the doorway just waiting for Anton to show up and then you just hear the and the pop of the lock and it hits him in the chest and it's like the sound of that hiss is like it means you're impending death and then his adversary in this film is Llewellyn Moss played really well by Josh Brolin aka Thanos (laughs) <laughs> um, Llewellyn's a hunter and also a killer too you can assume because he's, he's def- it looks like he's killed people in Vietnam yeah so he's yeah. a Vietnam War vet and Llewellyn like Anton is a very capable person he can handle himself but he's going up just like Sheriff Ed Tom an actual monster that he still till the end of the movie to his death never truly understands he never truly gets what Anton Chigurh is despite Carson Wells trying to explain it to him and Lewin, Lewin, I think so. I, to add on that real quick, I think that Llewellyn, he thinks that Anton Chigurh is motivi- motivated by money, but what he he doesn't understand is that Chigurh is motivated by his duty more than anything. His principles. Yeah. And Carson tries to explain that to him, but it's again, it's Carson, even though he thinks he understands Anton, he still doesn't under- understand Anton fully either. Um, and Llewellyn, the, the main difference between him and Anton is obviously humanity and Llewellyn has emotions and his biggest weakness going up against his maniac Anton Chigurh is his empathy and his compassion you know when he goes back he gets that money he gets the satchel and he goes back to bring the water to the uh the Mexican gangster inside that the car that's the biggest mistake he ever made because you can assume or you can imagine that if he never brought that water water back they would have never found out that it was him with the truck 
and chased him down and he wouldn't be in that mess. Yeah, he would have gotten um, away with it. He, I mean, you can think, but also I would think that I think that either way, Anton Chigurh was going to find him. Yeah, because he I, had the tracker, so maybe he would have tracked him down eventually. Even without the tracker, for me, again, the Terminator, Anton Chigurh would stop at nothing. He'd spend his entire life, he doesn't, wouldn't even care, spend his entire life finding the money and finding the person, just he, out of principle. He hints at that because when they're talking on the phone after the uh, the shootout, he um, he tells Anton that, his, that Carla Jean won't be in Odessa, and then... Anton says it doesn't matter where she is, which means he's like, it doesn't matter how far she goes or how long it takes, I'm going to find her. So he probably would have eventually found her. So him. I think, yeah, even with all the transponder, he would have found a way to find them. That's just, that's the most interesting part of that character. Um, and also, besides the empathy being the biggest mistake he ever, ever made, it's his pride and arrogance too, which are also human emotions, human weaknesses, because those lead him to, those lead to him and his wife's eventual deaths. I mean, because when you think about it, Anton Chigurh's weaknesses, he doesn't really have any weaknesses, If maybe a few, but he's a very effective killer, very clever, he ties up loose ends, does introduce himself to killing situations when he doesn't always have to, but again, he uses it to tie up loose ends, ensuring that he stays a ghost. Um, that's why Carson Wells, Wells explains that he's a ghost, and if you've seen him alive, you're a very lucky person because there's a 50-50 shot, you should be dead. And I, I really love the, the first act of this film because... Uh, our first sequence with Llewellyn is when he is first hunting in the desert, and then he stumbles upon the uh, drug cartels, cars, and dead bodies. And I think it's a brilliant scene because the whole sequence is he he stumbles upon the cars, and then he he tracks down very intelligently where the last man standing would have gone, and then he ends up finding the money. And to even think that there's yeah. a last man with yeah. money is I smart. Have, it's very I wouldn't clever. have thought of that. And it showed his intelligence, but also the way the Coens depicted is there's no exposition. He just he just mutters a few words kind of to himself, but otherwise they're we're, they're showing us everything. They're not telling us everything, and it's just a brilliant sequence, just like the opening of There Will Be Blood, where they're they're showing this amazing uh, ten minutes of film uh, where there's something very important is happening, but they're not spoon feeding us the information. We're kind of learning everything as Llewellyn is learning it, and he's even uh, a step ahead of us because, like you said, like we said, like if I stumble upon those cars, I just would have left and called the police or something. But he knew, he's smart enough to know, I think street's smart enough to know that um, if there was a shootout, someone survived because the money's gone. So there might- all the drugs are here. Yeah, but all the drugs are here. So the money must be somewhere. So I'm going to find out where the money is. So he is, uh, he ultimately is the, the protagonist, protagonist of this film, but only someone who has like an ambiguous kind of morality would even think of trying to find the money and take it from that person yeah because obviously he was going to probably have to kill somebody if he yeah. wanted to keep the money and Llewellyn he does seem like a good man one who simply just takes this shot and again we're talking about chance chance versus fate here he's clearly lived in poverty his entire life living in trailer parks Vietnam vets were treated like trash when they came home so you can assume he's probably unemployed maybe living on disability part-time work his wife Carla Jean has lived a similar life of poverty. She works at Walmart. They've never had any money. She's also the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower in uh, Harry Potter and Deathly Hollows, FYI. And she's in train spotting. Yeah, for sure. And um it which is why Llewellyn takes that chance of of looking for the money and then taking the money and running with it. And it's ironic how easy it was to get the money compared to how hard it was to keep it money, keep the money. Um but again, Llewellyn's intentions were inevitably going to be sinful anyways to get the money. Yeah, exactly. And um, this movie was Josh Brolin's big breakout role. He had been 
acting in Hollywood for a couple of decades with very little success. I think up to this point, his big, his most prominent role was in Goonies. Yeah, absolutely. And he was a kid back then. He was like 19. And so he had just been in these random small roles. He was an American gangster as a supporting character, but this, that came out the same year as this. So 2007 was obviously um, a big year for Josh Brolin. And before this film, he actually was working on Grindhouse, the Robert Rodriguez film that was a double feature with Death Proof with Tarantino. And he, so he was in Robert Rodriguez's film and he got the uh, opportunity to audition, to send in an audition tape to the Coen brothers while he was making that film. And he asked Robert Rodriguez if he could borrow a video camera in order to film his audition because he didn't have one. Because this, this is 2007, 2006 or 2005 when they made that movie. So not everyone had video cameras back then, kids, now that you're anyone <laughs> listening to this. And so he actually, after telling this to Robert Rodriguez and asking him for help, both Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino helped film Josh Brolin's uh, audition tape for this movie, and they shot it using the actual film cinema cameras they were using for their films, and Robert Rodriguez and Tarantino lit the scene, and so when Josh Brolin sent his audition tape to the Coen brothers, they're like, wow, the lighting looks amazing. Who shot this? <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> so I think that might have helped him get the role. And another prominent character in this film um, is Carson Wells, played by the great Woody House, and, and one of my favorite roles he's ever done. He's, he's really like funny and charming and, and quick-witted in this character of Carson Wells, who's basically a modern-day outlaw slash bounty hunter. And again, he thinks he understands Anton, but he really doesn't. And I think his, again, all the people who are victim to Anton, their weaknesses are human emotion. Exactly, and I think the best example of how he doesn't understand Anton, because he thinks he does, but you're absolutely right, because he he's killed by Anton in the same hotel where the night before Anton killed the clerk. And I think Carson stayed in that hotel because he thought there's no way Anton would go back to the hotel where he killed someone the day before because it's still a crime scene. And so that was his... Uh, big mistake thinking that he understood that whereas he did, still didn't understand just how how crazy Anton was to be actually stroll back into the crime scene of his own murder and that's actually hinted at later on when Tommy Lee's talking to that other sheriff and the sheriff's talking about how he went back to his own crime scene he's like what kind of crazy person would go back to their own crime scene yeah at the end of the film so again that's a really good point and Carson when he dies from from Anton's gun he tells him he knows where the money is. But again, he still truly doesn't understand this person. Anton doesn't give a crap about the money. He's more worried and he cares more about killing the people who, like Carson says, inconvenienced him. Yeah, like Carson's in the way. You know what I mean? Anyone who's in his way or like inconveniences him needs to be killed because that's part of his code. And like, yeah, he doesn't. He, Carson still doesn't understand because he's trying to buy his way out of the situation. And you can just see the, 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 the humor that... Uh, Anton is experiencing just listening to 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 uh, Carson beg for his life the same way everyone else does. And I think that Carson, he has all this arrogance and pride because he's one of, probably one of the only people alive that's ever seen Interacted. Anton Sugar yeah. and lived. And so I think he probably thinks he's like on the same level as Anton Sugar almost. Yeah. Obviously, he calls him and compares him to the bubonic plague and everything. Yeah. But I think he thinks that because he's lived through Anton Chigurh. And I love how we don't find out how they know each other. Yeah. Um, I think just they've both they've both been working for this employer for a long time. Yeah. Because there are very subtle hints to what the employer 
does and, and who they are because they obviously they have the business located in that building and then uh carson when he first goes into the office he mentions that oh, there's a there's a floor missing in the elevator and this is hinted at a lot of people think that architects often will not build the 13th floor out of luck uh like a superstitious kind of thing of bad luck being number 13 but really in the novel um they uh, cormac mccarthy tells you that the 17th floor is actually the one that's missing on the elevator uh, and the reason for that is because the 17th floor is where all the drug ring business is done, which is why it's not accessible through the elevator. This is obviously a very big drug scheme with someone who's very powerful and wealthy who has been employing people like uh, Anton and Carson uh, to deal with situations like this. And so I think obviously they have not a work history, but since they've been employed by the same person for a while, they they know each other and they've interacted in situations together. Yeah, it's actually really cool to see like the corporate aspect to these giant money running schemes, which I'm sure is super accurate to the real world situations yeah. of these of these giant gangs and yeah. corporate drug dealers. I agree. And I think my favorite example of Anton portraying his lack of humanity and understanding of people is uh, that last scene with Carla Jean uh, when she says, you don't have to do this. And then he kind of cracks up to himself and he says, you people always say the same thing. And she's like, what do what do they say? And he says, they say, you don't have to do this. And he's like, he's like ridiculing people because they don't want to die. And it, it really shows how disconnected he is from humanity, how he has absolutely no empathy for anyone else on the planet. And you can kind of... I like the end of the film too because Anton is driving very, very like professionally and safe, perfectly, and, yeah. and he's going through that green light and he gets t-boned by that car. And in, in a way, every time I watch that scene where he gets destroyed by the car accident, and he breaks. He's got a fucking bone sticking out of his arm. Um, for me, it's kind of like the universe is is trying to stop him because of his <laughs> moral, his moral evil. Like it's trying to. Get, death's trying to come for him almost because he's escaping and he's taking so much life that the universe is trying to find a way to kill him. But the, even the universe can't stop Anton Sugar. Even fate can't stop him. I would say that's a good point. I think it's just um, he is becoming victim of fate and becoming a victim of chance. And so just like the people he um, offers uh, their lives up be under the power of chance, he also became a victim of chance in that situation. I think the reason why this movie works so well is because um, they avoided a lot of the cliches and the, the expectations that you uh, would have with watching a film like this. For example, there's no big shootout at the end. There's no good guy against the bad guy. Um, uh, there's no big gunfight. And a lot of things are ambiguous and a lot of things are, you can say, anticlimactic in a lot of ways, especially Lou and Moss's death uh, near the end of the film where... We don't see his death. Ed Tom is driving up to the motel to to talk with Llewellyn, and then he sees a, a, a few cartel guys escape the area and drive off. And when he goes into the hotel, he finds Llewellyn's dead body uh, lying on the floor. And what a, he obviously died in a shootout with the Mexicans. And we didn't see it happen. I mean, w can you imagine any other movie not showing the death of the lead character in a situation and just showing their dead body instead? I think their their portrayal of the story that we've seen so many times uh, involving violence and, and gunfights and assassins and, and people trying to get away with, with stealing money, uh, I think it was so brilliant to see 
it portrayed in this new way by not showing things like that. And again, that's faithful to the book. It's how it happens mm-hmm. in the novel. Yeah. It's not. It's not a big climax. And it's, again, like you said, it's not even Anton who kills him. It's a, it's uh the other Mexican cartel people looking for the money because they track down. Uh, the mother first, and the mother is just a, a, a won't stop talking and tells them where they're going, what hotel they're going to, and so, um, so she's the one that kind of she doesn't understand the situation she's in, lets them know where Llewellyn is. And again, this is Llewellyn's pride and arrogance, thinking that everything's gonna be okay, even though I'm, I'm introducing the situation to more people, which is a giant mistake. And similar to there'll be blood, where we had two great antagonizing forces. Again, we have two antagonizing forces, like we've been talking about with Llewellyn and Anton. And they do have that great meeting finally where they get into a gunfight where where um, Llewellyn finally understands that there's a tracker inside the money and he finds the tracker. But it's but, too but late. But it's too late because Anton's already there and he killed the the clerk even though he asked the clerk to call him if any swinging dick comes inside the hotel <laughs> that night. And um, it's actually it's a really great shootout because like you said, it's not a big shootout. There aren't like bullets flying everywhere. Um, like constantly, but they're it's, not. It's, they don't fight. Yeah, they don't mean. They don't even really see each other. Yeah, that's what's so cool about this scene is they don't even. There's no hand to hand combat within. They're probably the closest they are is like ten feet within each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both get the upper hand on each other at both and different times during the shootout in the scene, and they both leave this scene fatally wounded. They're both gonna die without medical attention. And Llewellyn, uh, he's a clever guy, and he takes his his some of his money. He, he stashes most of it. Um. Or next to the border, next to the riverbank, and then goes into Mexico to find to get a go to the Mexican hospital where he thinks he won't be traced. And then Anton, like you said earlier, goes through his his self treatment and stealing the the drugs and and medical gear from the the pharmacy to treat his own wounds. And that shootout is so amazing because, like we said earlier, with the lack of music in this movie, this is such an intense action scene, and you don't hear a single note of music. I think it works so well. I think if it had music, it wouldn't feel right because this movie, it really felt authentic to what a shootout would be like. And it, like you said, they barely even see each other. And the sound effects is enough. The, the sound effects are enough in this situation, in this scene. And that is the music of the scene. And that's why it's so powerful. And their only other interaction besides that is the phone call um, while Llewellyn's in the hospital getting getting better, and, and Anton even knows where he is. But again, Anton, no one understands him. He knows where Llewellyn is, but he won't go down and kill him. He's going to go kill his wife instead. I think an underrated part of this film, I mean, not, I, obviously this film is beloved, and I just don't think that Tommy Lee Jones got enough attention for his role because every second he's on screen, he is unbelievable. He's really an amazing actor. He's Oscar winner, obviously, but I think with this movie, it's his best performance because he his character pretty much is uh, uh, talking about a lot of the main themes of the movie like we talked about earlier. But I think that this is such an unbelievable performance, and obviously it's kind of uh, understated in comparison to Javier Bardem's performance, but I think Tommy Lee Jones is, is just as good as him as Ed Tom. And uh, I think that... That monologue at the end of the film when he's talking about the, the dream with his father in it is one of the most moving uh, scenes I've ever seen in a movie because Ed Tom, uh, as a character, is in this really difficult position in his life because, like we talked about earlier, he doesn't understand the world anymore, and he's facing he's in his twilight years. He's getting old, and he's facing death. Death is at his door, and he's struggling with that because he says later in the film when he meets with his brother, he thought that God was just going to come into his life, and he didn't. And he feels like he's kind of been abandoned by God. And now that he's very old and 
um, he, he's going to be dying probably within a few years. He kind of doesn't understand what to do with himself. And I think he, he found, he, I think he discovered that he didn't really find meaning in life. And he, he thought he had it figured out until he reached this point. And I think that he's kind of lost as a, as a, a character in this world. And I think what happened to Llewellyn and how he wasn't able to save him really took a toll on him and really kind of sucked that loss of motivation of life out of him because, again, at that breakfast table after he's been retired and his wife's like, I can't play in your day for you. Mm -hmm. um, and he recounts those two dreams. And the first one is about meeting his father, um, gives him some money, but he thinks he lost it. And then the second dream is him and his father riding horses through snowy mountains and his father goes up ahead with the light to light the darkness in front of them. And I think that's obviously a representation of Llewellyn, how he wasn't able to save him and how he's just up in front of him. He couldn't catch him. Well, I interpret that story as um, because he says that his father's waiting for him. And so I think that his father waiting for him with the with the fire is that it means that his father has already passed away and he's and he's in the afterlife or whatever he's in the darkness and now uh ed tom is on his way there and he'll be there very soon so i think that he it's a representation of his father had passed away and so soon ed tom will be passing away in the scene at the end of the film where he asks him about um how many cats do you have like have you had all these cats he's like oh i talking about he's like some of them are half wild and some of them are full outlaws and to me, that's a representation of Llewellyn and even Carson versus Anton Chigurh. Chigurh is just full outlaw. He's a full animal monster killer. Whereas the other two, they think they are. They're, they're to an extent. But again, they're held back by not being tame like a cat, a house cat, but human emotion instead. And also that even though Ed Tom represents law and order and control, there are just certain people and certain forces in the world that you will never be able to control. And that you'll never be able to stop. And Anton represents that uh, of something that something in nature that is just that can never be can never be controlled and never be stopped. He is an unstoppable force of death and violence, and uh, it doesn't matter what he's put up against. Anton will always kill his way out of it. It's something I really love about this film because the Coen brothers, very funny writers, very funny directors. I'm sure they're hilarious in real life. As dark as this movie is, as, as suspenseful as it is, there are some real genuine moments of immense laughter and, and yeah. kind of jokes. And I mean, like when um, Llewellyn asks for another uh, hotel room in the same hotel, and then he looks at the map, and then the next scene, Anton's there, and he's looking at the map. And, and she's like, like, it's got two double beds. <laughs> <laughs> it's just really funny. And there, there are like maybe five moments in this film where you just laugh out loud and it kind of eases the tension and keeps you uh, riding along at like a steady pace emotionally. Yeah. There's this uh, a really great uh, YouTube video of um, of Josh Brolin. He actually filmed like a mockumentary while on set on this movie, like a comedic little 15-minute mockumentary. And the and uh, it starts out as like a normal documentary, but then he's he and the other actors uh, begin talking about how horrible the Coen brothers are and how mean they are and how <laughs> how like they're like dictator type 
uh, uh, directors and they're horrible on set. And then Javier Bardem is like talking about this fake story where like he reached for the salt at the table when they were having lunch and, and Joel Cohen grabbed his hand and said, you can't touch the salt. <laughs> and then he goes, and then Javier Bardem goes, they're just in the hotel room and he goes, I'm actually uncomfortable talking more. Is there something, is there, is there a way we can like hide my face? So then they cut to like that typical, like, uh, shadowed, shadowed face. face, silhouette, silhouetted, <laughs> but it's still Javier Bardem's accent. Like it's unmist- <laughs> it's unmistakable that it's Javier Bardem. It's so funny. If you have like 15 minutes, just look up uh, Josh Brolin mockumentary of No Country for Old Men. Oh, I'm it's definitely so watch funny. that tonight. Yeah, it's great. And again, Llewellyn's a very clever guy too. And I love the scenes where he's in the hotel rooms and he finds out that there's someone in his room, and um, then he gets that other room and. And he was wise enough to put the satchel in the, in the vent, vent before that. to hide it. And yeah. then he, he gets the tent poles, which is another scene, funny scene, too. He's like, <laughs> Which he's, tent you want? The one with the most poles. You already have a tent? I, I got a tent. I just need the poles. And then um, he pulls the, the tent poles, the, the, the suitcase through the vents with the tent poles while he hears the gunfire. Because yeah. the genius of that scene and the way that the layout of the hotel is when Anton pulls up with the transponder, it looks like room 138. That was Llewellyn's original room. That's yeah. where the money is in the transponder. Where Llewellyn's on the other side of that room in room yeah. thirty-eight. Yeah, and so and the and the money is like in between those two rooms in the vent. Yeah, so and that's why the Mexican cartel guys are inside his room waiting yeah. for him in the dark. They're inside Llewellyn's room thirty-eight, expecting Llewellyn to come home. Yeah, exactly. It's a great scene, and I, I think it can be a little confusing the first time you see it, trying to understand it. Because it's not explained to you, but I think if you on a second viewing, you're like, oh, okay, that's how the layout is yeah. exactly. Yeah, because they don't say that like room 138, the cartel are waiting for Llewellyn. Yeah, which exactly. Is, which is great. I prefer that. Yeah, I prefer too. having to figure it out myself. Yeah, it's fantastic, and it's such a great um, sequence where um, Anton kills the the cartel guys. It's really disturbing, and it shows his ruthless nature. And Roger Deakins, I mean, this guy's a rock star. We've talked about him a couple <laughs> you times. Call now. Him a rock star. He is a rock star, man. <laughs> Um, again, natural cinematography, very similar to There Will Be Blood. And the, the movie, they open it up with like a dozen beautiful landscape shots of West Texas and New Mexico. And they're really, really stellar. You know, he actually started out as a photographer. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, until we get to Anton Chigurh. And he's a, an amazing cinematographer. And I love the guy so yeah, much. Yeah, I, I, we watched it recently to prepare for this. And um, having seen so many films over the last five years or so that he has shot digitally... Um, I still, you could still see the same exact artistic voice with these film shots. And, um, he chose to start doing, uh, digital because it gave him more control, more flexibility because he likes to shoot, um, lights. He likes to light his scenes with very minimal lighting and very practical lighting, like practical in terms of you're actually seeing the light in the shot. The like light, a lamp. Yeah. Whatever's providing the light in the scene, you can see it. Whereas a lot of productions, they hide the light because they're like in a soundstage and all the lights are above the set and there's actually no ceiling in the set. It's just like a stage lights above them. So he doesn't like to do that. He likes to be like, okay, this hotel room has a light right there and a lamp there. That's all I'm going to use to light the scene because that's realistic to the scene in the moment. So I think with, with film, he can never get quite close to what he wanted. And now with digital, he's able to really explore every possibility with lighting and be uh, more authentic in terms of not needing more light because film uh, in dark it's it's it doesn't have the same flexibility as the new modern digital cameras have and so but you can still see the same deacon style in this film that he's always had and i think this is a beautifully shot film obviously um robert ellswit deserved to win the oscar but this has some amazing cinematography and also a lot of great 
Uh, there's a couple really great cross cuts in this film, and it has my favorite cross cut in all of cinema, where um, it co- it cross cuts from uh, a shaggy carpet on the floor with the with the uh, little screws in the in the vent door on the on the floor, and it cuts from the shaggy carpet, which is beige in color, and it cuts to it does a crossfade to the next shot, which is a landscape of a desert. And they blend together so beautifully. It's just an amazing cut that I'm, I guarantee you, Roger Deakins had that planned out. Yeah, the thing the thing with that is a lot of people don't understand that cinematography, it's such an art form. And it's usually really well planned. Um, like I remember when you were talking about that amazing cinematography in Shawshank Redemption about the the prison bars behind um, Morgan Red. Freeman's character yeah. Red when he is, leaves prison versus when. Um, the older man, you can't remember. Oh, what's his name? Can't remember his name. Um, when he leaves the prison, how the the bars engulf him. Like, cinematography is an art form, and, and it's very elaborate. It's very well planned. These are very intelligent, experienced cinematographers. Whether they show up to a set, maybe with a little bit unknowing of what they're gonna see, like like you know how that happens to Roger Deakins, I'm sure. And he shows up. He's like, I don't know what I'm gonna shoot yet, but a lot of the times it's very well planned, and I, I guarantee that was really well planned. Or maybe if if it wasn't, it just happened in editing. No, yeah, he does. It's a combination of inspiration and also prep because, like, for example, with the Coens and then with Denis Villeneuve, like with Blade Runner 2049 in, in the film Prisoners, which Deacon shot, he's in, insert in Sicario, he's involved with Denis Villeneuve in the pre production phase. Mm-hmm. And they're planning out the scenes together visually and storyboarding together before they even start production. So oftentimes, Roger Deakins is very much involved in the pre-production of the films. Yeah, he's, he's a very involved in terms of being like a, a, another filmmaker on the set, besides just being the DP. He's, he's, so, he's so important to these filmmakers because uh, if, like, whenever, like, I love um, Inside Lewin Davis. It's a really great film and a really beautiful film, but you could tell that it just was missing Roger Deakins' cinematography. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's just like, and the same thing with uh, with the Neville News films when, when you saw Arrival, uh, again, beautifully shot movie, but Arrival didn't have Roger Deakins that time, and you can just tell it's missing that that Roger Deakins magic. He there's something magical about his ability to translate images in in cinema, and no one I think will ever be able to do it the way he has done it. And even though these are amazing directors, when they don't have him on set helping them pick the shots out and light and move the camera. There's something missing from those movies that's obviously undeniable. And this film also features great supporting cast. I mean, Garrett Dillahunt as Deputy Wendell is hysterical. And what are we looking for? A uh, man who's recently drunk milk? Oh, oh, Sheriff, <laughs> we, gotta, we, gotta, we gotta put we gotta this out there. We gotta put this out, Sheriff. And oh, they even shot the dog. He's really funny. He's like a very positive person. And then uh, Tess Harper as Loretta Ball, um, Barry Corbin as Ellis, Stephen Root. I mean, Kelly McDonald as Carla Jean doesn't have much screen time, but she's great. Yeah, she's she's fantastic in the role. And so the supporting cast in this movie is great. And again, the Coen brothers do such a go- good job uh, casting like local people. My one of my favorite facts about this movie is that the the case that the money is in in this movie is actually the same exact case that the money is in in Fargo. Oh no way! Same exact case. That's so cool. Yeah. Never noticed that. And in Fargo, it's I think it's $1 million, and then this movie, I think it's $2 million. I actually recently watched Fargo, too, and I never picked oh, up on brilliant. that. brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, two days after getting the role of Llewellyn, um, Josh Brolin broke his shoulder in a motorcycle accident. Um, fortunately, Llewellyn gets injured in his shoulder pretty early in the film, so it, it actually 
didn't turn in, it turned out to not be much of an issue for the character at all in uh. filming. Despite Tommy Lee Jones having the least amount of screen time, he was top billed, and due to an error, Paramount Pictures was forced to pay him $15 million when an arbitrator found that studio's lawyers had made an error drafting Jones' deal to appear in the film. That's crazy. I'm sure they never had him in a movie again for that studio. <laughs> I mean, for the budget of the film was only 25 mil. That's yeah, crazy. That's nuts. The credited editor for this film, Roderick Janes, is the pseudonym for Joel and Ethan Cohen because, again, they edit all of their films. Yeah, Janes. And the reason for that, they have to use a pseudonym because there's these weird Academy rules where uh, you, you can't like be the director, writer, and editor of a movie. And also, it's pretty rare for two people to win an Oscar for directing. And there's only, and the reason for that is because uh, it's, a, it's a way of preventing, especially in the past... Of preventing like actors like movie like in the past like like the golden era days of filmmaking like a lot of actors uh, were very much in charge of the sets and so they would want to claim directing credit for the movies which would cause a lot of problems with like the the studio and the actual director and producers and so the academy implemented this rule with making it very difficult for some for two people to be the director of a movie. But the only way to get around that is to have an established filmography of two people directing movies together. So that's why the Coen brothers are able to uh, uh, claim co-credit as directors. And, and that's why they're able to, to get nominated and also win the Academy Award for Best Director, even though there are two of them. It's very rare, but they're only able to do it because they've been making movies together for so long. Heath Ledger had actually been in talks to play Llewellyn Moss, but he withdrew to take some time off instead. He eventually played the Joker in The Dark Knight in 2008. His uh, Oscar win for that film succeeded Javier Bardem's win in the same exact category for Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Yeah, two two great villains back to back years. What a what a friggin' decade, man! It's crazy. This was the second Best Picture Academy Award winner to be produced, directed, written by, and edited by the same person. Well, two people in this case. The first was James Cameron for Titanic. This is one of my favorite movies. You could argue it could be the best western of all time. And it's just one of the one of the greatest movies of this century so far. Yeah, I think I think No Country for Old Men is probably my favorite movie of all time. Um, every time I see it, I, I get new things out of it. It's phenomenal, amazing script, amazing directing. Characters are phenomenal. The acting's superb. Every time I watch it, I'm just blown away. And it was a great movie to pair with There Will Be Blood. I mean, two very again similar films that came out the same year and competed for Oscars and awards and. I was so stoked to do this episode with these two films because they're so special. They'll live on forever. Um, they'll probably just get more notoriety as the years go on. And this wraps episode 53 of Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe on YouTube, hit the notification bell, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care, everyone.